and welcome to the Sala Podcast. My name is Steph and today I'll be catching up with South Australian artist Ian Gibbons. I want to acknowledge that we're recording on the unceded land of the Ghana people and pay respect to elders past and present. Now this is actually a bit of a special episode. It's presented in partnership with Inspiring South Australia. So Inspiring SA is all about providing South Australians with opportunities to connect and get excited about science. And now Sala Festival, as we all know, is all about celebrating South Australia's visual artists. And Ian, I dare say you are right in the middle of that Venn diagram. <laughs> is that fair to say? Absolutely fair to say. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, well, thanks for coming down to have a chat. Um, and now, look, I will be honest, I actually don't know where to start dissecting your journey as an artist. Little biology pun for you there. You originally studied a PhD in zoology and went on to be an internationally recognised neuroscientist and professor of anatomy. First of all, okay, chill out. <laughs> um, but how, how did you go from that to finding your way to art? And did you see it coming? Definitely saw it coming. Okay. Though I, I never imagined that I'd end up where I am now. Gotcha. So that was, there's two parts to that. So I've always been interested in art um, and arts in general. So primarily writing. Yep. So when I was at school, the two choices were to be a scientist or a writer. In those days, a writer was, was a journalist. Yes. And my father worked part-time as a sports journalist. Oh. So I sort, of, I sort of had a bit of an idea what happened behind the scenes of, of getting stuff written, edited, pub published, in that case in the, in the sporting pages of the newspapers in Melbourne. Um, but I was always, always interested in both those things and I was, I was good at writing at school and I was good at languages. I've always done languages. I did Latin, French and German at school as well as science. Um, and then when I went to, to university, Melbourne University, um, I was doing my undergraduate degree in, in just general sciences, oh, including yeah. zoology, but yeah. included all sorts of other stuff. But I was also part of a writer's workshop. So, oh, okay. so once a week, there was a poetry workshop that was mentored by two of the Australia's best ever poets, Chris Wallace Crabb and Vincent Buckley. <laughs> and I, so I was writing um, experimental poetry then, performing it, yeah. and was regularly taking part in those workshops. I edited magazines with the people there. And if I hadn't have got a PhD scholarship mm. in zoology, I would have gone back and done languages. Oh, OK. So it was always there. So these uh, have never been two they've, distinct they've, worlds. They've never been two distinct wow, worlds. Wow, they've always yeah. been woven yeah. together. That's really, yeah. I, I had to ask because it was like, it, they, it could have been distinct, yeah, but yeah, yeah. no, there you go. Um, coming back to your practice in the present day, what themes do you tend to return to or explore in your in your work the th yeah there's, there's several themes sort of run to run together in my video work which is mostly what I'm doing now mm. but they've also been part of my poetry which has been going for like 15 years yeah. or so after I so I came back to poetry I, I, I stopped altogether um, not because I was doing science but because I thought I had nothing interesting to say <laughs> as, a, as, as a poet. You're allowed a break. Yeah, and, and, and I, but during that time I was, I was always reading a lot of experimental literature, so I have mm. a strong interest in, in experimental literature going back to the Dada and Surrealist poets, 
and, the, and their precursors. Yeah. And then people like James Joyce and Samuel Beckett, um, William Faulkner, people like that. And then going through the 60s with the Nouvelle Romance School of French. So I kept my French up so I could read yeah, some good. of it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then the Oulipo group coming out of Europe and America. So I was always interested in that all along. Yeah. And I thought I've got no nothing to say. <laughs> These guys have already done it all. And I was perfectly happy doing my science. Uh, but I kept reading all that, all yeah. that work. And then, I don't know, must be about 15 years ago, we, I started writing again, just jumped up one day. I was, we were on holidays down Kangaroo Island and I woke up one morning with a poem in my head for the first time for 30 years. Funny or how it, comes it, was, back. it was incredible. Yeah. Um, and then I started writing again and wasn't thinking too much about it. But it was actually a science event which brought me right back into it. Isn't that and, interesting? Yeah, so, so I was at Flinders University and we're in the medical school there and that was physically part of the medical centre, Flinders Medical Centre. Yeah. And Flinders Medical Centre has uh, one of the world's leading arts and health programs. Mm. And they arranged for a, um, a full-day seminar on sort of the art and science of the body. Mm. And... As Professor of Anatomy, I was interested in the history of anatomy and things like that. And I, th I thought, oh, what am I going to do for this? So I actually wrote some, some, some new poetry and also some new um, electronic music, put some of it to, to electronic music again, and performed it. That was the first time I'd done that like for, since I was undergraduate. <laughs> <laughs> um, and people liked it and yeah. said, oh, you should do this, you should do that. Um, so I, I did. And that led to my first book being published, which was called Urban Biology. And so the, a collection of poems um, exploring the urban landscape in all its different ways. And I realised when I was putting the book together that I had referred to either directly or obliquely lots of different types of plants and animals. And so I actually had a species checklist in the back of the book. <laughs> <laughs> so so that the notion of, of um, how we fit into our environment and the contrast between our, our built artificial environment and the natural environment that we're absolutely part of is, is key to, it, to, to what I do. And that's moved now into my video work. Yeah. And is that... I might be picking up <laughs> a connection that's not there, but... Could you explain what zoology, um, what that area of study is? Because yep. it sounds like that's a strong connection there. Yep. Yeah. So, so, so zoology, in a way, was a was a perfect grounding for everything I did afterwards in, in science. So, zoology is the study of animals. Yeah. Um, the scientific study of animals, as opposed to botany, which is the the scientific study of plants. Unfortunately, I wasn't very good at botany, but since I've retired, I've come right back to it and got much more, in, and we've got deep into. Um, into the local plants, um, which we can talk about later if necessary. Um, mm. So, so in zoology, it was at Melbourne University. We covered everything from how the cells worked, how they looked down microscopes, and things like that, mm. things like that, through to how animals behaved, interacted in the environment to ecology. So, mm. so in my undergraduate degree, I went I went from molecular to to global yeah. <laughs> scales wow. um, and also on time scale so it, there's the evolutionary time scale on one hand on the other hand we're looking at the sort of almost minute to minute interaction between cells and plant and animals and mm. at all the different levels and so my PhD in zoology I, I used 
um, electromicroscopes to look at the nerves of, of different types of animals. Yeah. And so that was absolute cutting edge at, at the time. And I kept doing electron microscopy and various other forms of fancy microscope work all the way through my career. That was what I was one of my main areas. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so coming out of the zoology and then what followed from that over 30 years or something like that, mm. um, is that I know stuff about the world and the and way that that interacts, and way it interacts yeah. which what's below the surface, mm. and then that became even more so when I was, when I became professor of anatomy at, at Flinders, and I was teaching medical students um, about how the body works and what's like inside, and I ended up teaching just about everything about the body <laughs> over 30 years there <laughs> um, with with the medical staff. Um, but, I, but I always had this, this link back to, to the grounding in, in zoology and, and botany. It's, you know, this is the way the world works. This is, and so as I'm just looking out the window here, you know, I can see the, the, the plants out there. I know, I've forgotten the name of those plants, but I know they're South African um, ferals. Um, but I also know why they're green and why they're orange. Yeah, OK. So there's um, an innate so understanding. in terms of what, what that means for the plants, what it means for the birds that come and feed on those orange flowers, the fact that insects uh, won't be able to see those orange flowers because they can't see red. Um, but that the... That's the level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And I know the, the molecular... I know what's happening at a quantum mechanics level between the light coming from the sun interacting with the green and the chlorophyll to, to interacting with the light receptors in our eyes. So I know all of that and I could explain to you in fabulously complex language and these people know a lot more about all of those things than I do. But I know all that. Yeah. And so in... In my first book, Urban Biology, it was interesting to, to build on that knowledge and use some of that language mm. in a way where it actually doesn't matter if you don't know what the words mean. Mm. And so I had a, one sequence which was called Lessons in Neuroscience. And it's actually, although each section I knew what that was about, the, the reader didn't need to know that. And for the reader, it was, it was a story about snakes or it was a story mm. about jellyfish or something God, like that. God, that's such an yeah. interesting yeah. jewel, you know, yeah. <laughs> you're in two worlds at once. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um. Festival you're exhibiting at the Joinery in Adelaide. Can you tell me about the work that you'll be showing? Yes. So the work at the Joinery, it's a collection of, of videos mm -hmm. um, which are put together in a, in a continuous loop. So it's about a 40, 45 minute loop or something like that. I think, I can't remember exactly how many, there's eight or ten videos in it. Mostly new work, not entirely, but they're all to do with something to do with to do with the environment mm. because the joinery is it's, it's associated by the Conservation Council, South mm. Australia. That's um, a great pairing. <laughs> yeah, so it's, a, it's a perfect pairing. Yeah. And I've done, this is the third time in the last three or four years I've had a sequence of videos as part of Sala. The previous two have been online. Um, and, but there was, this is a great opportunity to, to actually engage a bit more directly with people. Yeah. Um, so as well as the, the video loop, um, which is running on the Friday, each Friday during during Sala, um, where I do an artist talk one night. 
oh, and good. another night um, I'll have a couple of other poets who are interested in the environment and, and the three of us will do a reading. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. so, the, so the sequence of videos covers um, a lot of different approaches. So I use quite a lot of pretty reasonably advanced technical stuff when I make my videos. Yeah. It goes back to my science days. So yeah. when, when, when we were um, at Flinders, we were one of the world leading groups of laboratories, not just mine, um, on, on being able to visualise um, nerves in a, in a special way right. and when using fancy microscopes and, yeah. dig, and when digital imaging became available, we, we jumped on that straight away. So we were using programs that were sort of like, the, um, like Photoshop before it was Photoshop and I learned how to write code for some of this stuff so 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 things like you know to sharpen your image or to extract out edges or to average images getting i knew how to do all of that yeah. um so then when i started doing video it was reasonably natural yeah. i didn't i didn't feel didn't feel alien at all no. doing digital video um there's a lot to learn i'm <laughs> sure but you sort of but, but, but I, I didn't i didn't it was it didn't feel hard mm. um so I really got interested in the technical side of making digital videos mm. and I've learnt the animation engine that sits behind the software that I use. Um, and so I like using video to present views of the world that you can't get otherwise. Mm. Are you using a lot of, you know, I've seen data represented and sort of integrated um is that that's something you're doing a lot like uh, no not no. not very not very much there there is one little video in in the sequence that's in the sala sequence called anomaly where i've just animated um climate data for the temperature of the um of the Gulf of St Vincent over yeah, the last hundred years. The one I'm thinking yeah. of, yeah. <laughs> so there's a um, that that data just came straight off the um, the Bureau of Meteorology website. It's, it's about six layers in, but it, all the data's there, and it's a very very simple animation of the of the um, change in sea surface temperature mm. over a hundred years. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's, it keeps going up and up and yes, up and up. Yes, it's quite go, concerning. Goes, <laughs> and then, but behind that. The, the video that sits underneath the, 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 the chart is a complete fabrication made of images from Moana. Mm. So it's a combination of two or three still images, um, footage of, of just waves breaking on the beach, mm. um, footage, more footage of clouds filmed over the Gulf, and they're all composited in a way. So it looks like this starts off just people sitting on the beach and then gradually they just get subsumed by the tide coming and as, as, as the chart moves up. So um, that's a, it was a simple piece, but that's a sort of compositing, that sort of animation mm. I do a lot of. Yeah, and a lot of yeah. that, I've noticed a lot of it was very, you know, disconcerting, and which I imagine was kind of the point. Because, Good, thank you. <laughs> because, I mean, you know, the climate crisis is kind of one of the key yeah. themes in that, isn't it? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, so all of these... This whole sequence of videos is all about the climate crisis mm. in some way or another. So the, the oldest film in there is one called Flood Tide, which I made a few years ago now, which has had incredible success. I've been to, it's been amazing. It's been shown all, all around the world and continues to be too, which, is, which surprises me. So, so that came apart from actually... It was a talk I gave for a climate conference, something at Climate and Art here in Adelaide a few years ago, and I, and I imagined what Adelaide would look like 
if you're up at uh, the lookout at, at Windy Point, or yeah, Windy Point, which is not far from where I live, looking out over the sit over the sea, what would happen if the city was flooded yeah. due to to rising sea levels? And so I wrote a story about that, and then I had this idea: oh, sure, it'd be great to go and, f- and, f- and make a film of this. Mm. No idea how to do it, and <laughs> that's the way. <laughs> and when I first started collecting footage for it, I thought, how on earth am I ever going to, you know, like make North Terrace f- look flooded, or one of the local rivers on Kaparinga or something overflowing its banks? But I figured out how to do it, and that's when I went and learned how to do the animation side of the of the um, software that I use. And so that film has had a lot of interest because I must have done a pretty good job, I suppose, because people did, a lot of people don't, didn't realise that they're not real scenes. Yeah, it's subtle. Yeah, yeah so, um, so I was happy about that. But that, that, took me out, that took me months, that took me a year to make an eight-minute video. Yeah. Um, because of... To get, you have to match up. If you're going to make a fake scene, it's got to look right. Mm. So you've got to have the, the sun coming from the same direction same in each case. Yeah. You've got to have the, the shadows going well the same way and the same intensity. You've got to have the wind blowing the same way. Um, and the colours have got to match and all that sort of thing. So, um, so that was, a, that was a, a quite difficult exercise, but it was worth every, every mm. bit of it. And it's done extremely well. Um, then there's other ones which are more recent ones so there's this one called grey box um which is f- again it's very disorienting people find it um and it was filmed up in Bel Air national park and it was along uh, just one of the tracks i walk along there and rather than filming it I, I took a whole series of still photos just on my phone and then stitched them together to make a, a panorama and then I animated the panorama, and as and the only soundtrack is the is what was recorded on the day mm. with um, just the local birds. But there's also it's it's on the um, north side of Bellier Park, and across the road there's construction sites and traffic and stuff like that going. So you hear all these birds, and you hear all these construction sounds going at the same time, and that's just what it was. Um, and so, so that's very quiet, subdued. Almost nothing seems to be happening, except the forest gradually turns to grey and all that's left is one dead grey box tree. There's no text other than the, the latitude and longitude mm. of the spot where, where the grey box tree was. Yeah. So, that, so that's, that's the other extreme. And then there's other, other ones like um, Space Invaders, which is an adaptation of a poem in my original urban biology book. But the animation for that's all done with, or most of the, the video in that is done with generative algorithms which... So there, it's a way of um, making making things out of nothing. Yeah. Are we so, talking? Are we talking like sort of AI generating? No, in this or, case, it's not AI. No. Though, though I have used AI for yeah, oh, okay. for, for other films, but not, not not these ones. So it's, it's it's a mathematical algorithm, and so you start off with with a with a seed image, which might be just a a star or a leaf or a, a ball or just a, a letter or something mm. like that, and then the, then the algorithm says, let's make 30,000 of these and let's throw them out and let's pretend there's some gravity and let's pretend there's some wind and let's make them twirl in an unpredictable way and let's make 
them when they get to a certain size change colour. Endlessly um, speculative kind yeah, of... Yeah, so you get all these incredible things. So they so can make just clouds of particles or you can make things which look like jellyfish. This is mad scientist territory now. This is mad scientist territory, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the, yeah, and the thing's called Space Invader. The poem's called Space Invaders and it's looking at the point of view of... It's, it's really ambiguous voice. So the, 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 the narrations in first person nearly always do yeah. do that. And it's not clear whether the, the space invaders, the people talking, are the cause of the climate going bad or they're just, they're, they've been revealed because of the climate going yeah. bad or they're just there as observers. Yeah, the, the, that little the, bit um, of ambiguity is always, yeah, just the right amount. Yeah. So, yeah, so at the end they, they say, you know, but for the moment we're sitting pretty. Yeah, not quite giving it all away. Yeah, that, that's right. So... Not, not giving it all away to me is is, is critical point of of my approach to to all of my art form, a bit of work, the poetry and the, yeah, and, the yeah. and the writing, and and even the I've done collaborative work with installation with other artists on installations and things, and the ambiguity of the experience is exactly it. So part of that comes back just because that's what I like, <laughs> <laughs> but it's all, but but there, it's also part of there is a a neuroscience rationale to it. Mm. And that is that we, it's impossible for us to process all of the sensory information that we're getting at once. So as I said, I'm here talking to you, I can look out the window, then I can't see you. I can look at you and I can't understand what's going out the window and something just moved. I think it was a car, but I couldn't mm. tell you what sort it was. If I had been looking out the window, I would have been able to tell you what was an SUV or a mm. bus or something. What? So there's that. It's the same with the sound as we're talking to each other. At the moment, we're listening, I hope, and, <laughs> and we're not particularly paying attention to any birds or cars or mm. something which are outside the window. Similarly, in, in our body, we're not paying attention particularly to our toes or little fingers until I mentioned them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. so, so we're only ever getting a small amount of the total experience available to us. Mm. And our, one of the amazing things our brain does is to assemble that into this feeling of being in the moment, literally in the moment. And that takes time. It takes about half a second for that to happen. Right. So we're already running late. <laughs> Don't put it like that. <laughs> by, by about a third of a second, yeah, half yeah. a second. Um, so that's the first thing. And the second thing then is that it's almost impossible to look below this layer of experience that we have. And what I mean by that is that for in order for us to understand what what all these things we're looking at in real time, in order for me to speak, generating hopefully coherent sentences and <laughs> with so some far. sense of grammar so far, <laughs> and for you to understand them and make a joke back, and for our listeners to, to follow along, is a huge, huge amount of processing which is inaccessible to us. Mm. You can't think about that. You can't go into it and think of... And, and no, then I'd lose my words. Yeah, yeah. That's right. You can't do it all at the same time. So a lot about what I... I'm interested in doing in, in writing and in, in now in video is trying to capture that borderline between um, this sort of conscious experience yeah. and all of the subconscious stuff which is going on underneath. And it is inherently ambiguous because our interpretation of the world is inherently ambiguous. It would take me... I haven't quite got the stuff here to, to do it, but <laughs> it's very, very easy to disrupt this, this, this integrated feeling experience of the world. So you can make... It's easy to, to make time appear to stop or go backwards. It's, it's easy to, to see things which are apparently moving which aren't. 
I think you've got too much power now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So wow. they're, they're all things. You know, they're all things I used to teach. We used to do all that. Yeah. And we, I used, part of my public science was was to talk about all that sort of stuff. Mm. And um, so that that deeply informs yeah. um, what what I do. And so the one of the things I really like about poetry and the sort of video that I make is that they exist in, on their own terms. Mm. And so, it's a bit, so a poem is different from a novel, for example, in, in an important thing. So a novel will, will have a narrative structure to it and as a reader you can relate to the internal time scale of the novel, even if it's experimental work, you still tend to, to do that. Mm. And then that novel sort of is like a meta voice in the sense it's referring to something outside in, in, in the world. And, and a poem in general just exists for what it is. Mm. There's, it may well have a narrative structure and it might, almost certainly refers to things out in the, in the rest of the world, mm. but it's, it's really a, a little window on an internal monologue mm. that's, that it only exists for its 14 lines or 10 lines. Yeah, you know, a Shakespearean it. sonnet, that's what it is. Yep. Um, holding to itself. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, and so the same with video. So when you go and see a, a film or you're at the movies or you watch something on TV, they have a clear narrative structure, even if it's disjointed and stuff like that. Mm. But there's a time scale in there. This, this, this is representing a period of time of, mm. of 12 years or, or two hours mm. or someone's lifetime or a period in history or something like that. That's embedded. But in most poetry videos mm. and a lot of video art, it's just there for the three and a half minutes yeah. or the two and a half minutes or the eight minutes, however long it takes. Yeah, yeah. And it may well refer to external things and, of course, it's got images of the external world, but, they, but they're existing in a context which is, which is most of the time is separated from the, from the extended... Yeah world out there and that's something I really love mm, I like that <laughs> phrase you know it's yeah on its own terms yeah. um, that is very I love how we've just painted a whole method of you know throwing the rules of time out the window and just yeah. oh, gosh let me let that sink in. <laughs> and actually that was something I wanted to talk about that we've already tapped into that sense of how your background in science informs you know it's easy to talk about you know a video as or art as an object as an outcome but shifting to art as an endeavor uh, that is really interesting how that methodology or just those awareness of these scientific concepts are informing not just the outcome but your approach and you know parameters to you're making um are there any other ways that you notice that showing up like little subtle yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely so, i mean you, you you actually nailed it so <laughs> so i've worked with collaboratively with several artists over a long time now um catherine truman I, we, Again. <laughs> so i've been working with her since 2008 and we've God, imagine the conversations you guys would have. <laughs> they are, they're fantastic. Yeah. And well, we've just got a show which is actually finishing up this week oh. at Newmarch Gallery. We're part with some other people, which is sponsored by ANAT, the Australian Network for Art and Technology. And both of us have had a lot to do with ANAT over, over the years. Um, and that, that show is, in, is entirely about process. Oh, um, there you go. And... 
the details of that don't matter for, for now, but, <laughs> but, the, but the, the idea of how you go about making something, discovering something, is, is something that Catherine and I and other, other artists I've worked with talk about a lot. And for me, I get asked a lot, you know, what's the difference between art and science? Is there any difference, you know, <laughs> creating a, a, an artwork compared to, you know, doing something in, in the lab? And in my head, there's no difference. You're just doing stuff. Yeah. Um, and even the, the way that you go about doing it is, is not very different. Yeah. And basically, to, to, to sort of distill it out, you have an idea. You don't know if it's good or not. <laughs> you reckon it's probably pretty good, otherwise you wouldn't yeah. bother doing it. <laughs> so you give it a go. That, and yeah. then part of being, I think, a good scientist and, and a good artist is knowing when you're out of your depth <laughs> and then when to pull out because it's just a complete waste of time yes. <laughs> or when to say, oh, bugger this, I'm going in anyway yeah. and, and have a go. Yeah. And, and sometimes that having a go means collaborating with someone else. Mm -hmm. So in science, if, if you don't know how to do something, you go and find someone who can yeah. and you say, hey, I've got this idea, want to try this, want to do that. And they say, <laughs> come back in a week and then, okay, I'm back in a week. Have you thought about it? Yeah, yeah, sure, we'll give it a go. And then everybody learns something new. Same in, in the art. So, um, so every, I've done quite a few collaborations over the last few years with, with my video. Um, I've done audio just recently. I've, I did some audio for someone else's video. Oh, yeah. Um, I've been working with non-English speaking um, artists and doing non-English videos mm. um, and every time you learn something new yeah. and that was the great thing about collaborating with people in science every time you learn something new so there's this that's one part which is similar another part which is similar is some sense of persistence and pig-headedness <laughs> <laughs> you, you know it's not working but you know it should <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you and you try and solve problems mm. and and, and it's, it's partly a gut feeling, it's partly doing research, mm. it's partly being systematic about it and getting that balance right varies from project to project. And, you know, sometimes in, in the lab you have this crazy idea and you go and give it a go and, Jesus, it worked. Yeah. And, then you, and then suddenly you drop everything and the next six months that's all you, that's You're all you do. You're obsessed, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> other times you've, you've had this stuff you've been working on for a year or two years or something and you finally get around to doing the critical experiment and it doesn't work. Mm. And you know, what, what went wrong? And you realise either the idea was wrong or the technique was wrong or just the whole framing was wrong. And that happens with the creative stuff too. So um, you, you go out and you work on stuff and work on stuff and you get to the end of it. And sometimes you decide yourself, hopefully before someone else tells you, <laughs> well, I've done, all this, I've done all this work and it's, and it's just no not doing it. Yeah. And I'd, I'd hate to be in, the, in an area of arts like in theatre or, or full-scale movie production where you've got a massive crew, you've got a massive investment of money going into it. You go public on the opening night and it's complete, everybody goes, bruh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at least if I do a four-minute work or something like that and people go, don't like it, I'll, 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 I'll do another one. <laughs> um, so, so, so there's that side of it. And then the final bit... Or another, another, <laughs> another bit, bit. <laughs> is that which I think there's a lot of overlap between artists and scientists here from what I've seen. You do all this work, 
you reckon it's done. You're not quite sure, but you go with it anyway. Mm. So what do you want to do with it? You want to tell everybody. (laughs) (laughs) You want to show it. You want to talk about it. You want to publish it. You want to put it out to the world. And (laughs) then, and it's extraordinarily difficult process. I I never, ever get over that initial anxiety of putting new work out there. Yeah, in Um, both contexts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so when you're a scientist, the way you put stuff out there, you give a talk at a conference and you're sitting there giving a talk, you're halfway through your 10-minute talk and you notice people are sort of looking through the programs. (laughs) (laughs) What's on next? Checking their phone, yeah. (laughs) um, That's not going down well. Um, Similarly, you you know, you put something out into a um, film, goes out to film festival and most of the time they get rejected, um, but every now and then, you know, you get stuff accepted. Yeah. I, I had two today, which is, oh, really, well done. <laughs> which is really good. Um, it's strange to think of vulnerability as being a common ground there, but yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's because your product and your... Yeah, and it's because what it is, it's you. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, people talk about the creative spirit or, yeah, well, everybody's creative. Mm-hmm. Um, I we could talk, spend another happy hour talking about why that might be true, but <laughs> everybody's creative. You're improvising all the time. We're improvising speech now. We're improvising what you do as you walk down the street every day. Um, but artists and scientists and, th- and other professionals too, architects, engineers, mm. um, builders, you know, um, tr- carpenter or something like that, mm. the whole time you're creating something which is partly to an external demand partly to your own internal drive, and that balance shifts between if you're in a trade or profession, then the drive's mostly external. Mm. If you're uh, most types of artists, and if you're in certain areas of science anyway, you're being driven entirely internally, pretty mm. much. But in general, there's, there's a bit of a, a bit mix, of and, yeah. and even I think the most extreme artists would like to have at least one person say what they did was okay. <laughs> I know there are artists who say, well, I don't care what the world thinks about what I do. Um, I think they probably do. But, um, but, then, but there's a range of what that level of acceptance is. So in my science, I was really well known in our, in our field. I was regarded as an expert in the field and, and all the rest of it. But I was never going to win a Nobel Prize and, or something like that for the work that we did. Um, and that doesn't faze me at all. I mean... Um, and the same with my art. My, my, my video work does really well, but it's not the sort of stuff you go getting to the Cannes Film Festival or, or something like that. Um, so, the, so I think artists and scientists who see their work sort of as a as a profession, as a calling. I don't know. Endeavor. Yeah. As yeah, as um, some somewhere in, in that spectrum. One of the things you do is you take, it, you take the craft seriously mm. and taking the craft seriously means being aware of the technical side of it, the limitations the, of what you can do, um, breaking them or not, yes. uh, not knowingly, sometimes a bit rashly, sometimes recklessly, <laughs> um, to see what, just to see what will happen. Um, that's, that's part of it. But also it's respect knowing and respecting the community you're a part of and the community you've come from, so the history of your craft, the history of your, of your discipline, is really, really critical, partly because just to acknowledge and respect everything that's gone before, but also because so you don't make repeat mistakes. Yeah. Or you just don't do something... I mean, a lot of art and most science is about doing something new. You don't want to do... Well, you, know, you don't want to put something and everybody says, well, yeah, it was done. I've done that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And in science, that's an absolute death knell yeah, because yeah. you never get funded ever again. Um, and, and lots of areas of the arts, not all, but lots of areas of arts, that's... That's an issue. That, so, um, Gosh, there's so much common ground. There's, a, there's a huge amount of common ground. I mean, uh, you do give lectures specifically on that intersection of art and science, so I guess yeah. you've had some time to think about yeah, it. But, but there are at the extremes. Man, yeah. it's, there, there, there are artists who will never, ever have anything in common with, with, mm. with scientists. There are scientists who will never have anything yeah. in common with artists by their own reckoning. Mm. I think if you stand back from it, you'll see all that, that side is at that end and the, and the artist and that end are probably more like each other than all the people in the middle. <laughs> oh, how funny. Yeah. I mean, it does make sense. I feel like the curiosity flows across both areas. And, um, yeah, it's so interesting that it's never been two distinct things for you and oh. that it's always been. So you don't have, like, science in and art in. It's just Ian, isn't it? Yeah, yeah just an Ian, really. <laughs> <laughs> Part of the, what I thought you were going to ask me about. Oh was, yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, was um, one of the things we, which comes out of say this sort of work about the environment. Mm. Say, and others, most of my other work, if it's not about that, is something to do with people behaving badly in dystopian <laughs> environments, bad, bad behaviour by by government or. Um, do you think that, is your work often looking forward? Like, is that a common? Yeah, it always is. Yeah. So, so I. I I think I'll go out on a limb here, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, I think all art is political yeah. and probably all science is too, for that matter. Um, I, I don't believe that in the neutrality of science, yeah. despite the fact that it can be largely be free of overt prejudice or bias, and that's one of the great things about science, that it can be like that, yeah. but it doesn't mean it is. So science is determined by the context in which you're working mm-hmm. and... That includes what's being funded or not at the time, which is subject to political whims, it's subject to trends and fads, just like any other area of human activity, and scientists are people too. And and the the thing about science and what makes it as strong as it does is that there are enough people who believe that it can be as unbiased as possible enough of the time to do it properly Mm. and then you get results. So like we said right at the start, why I know something about why the plants out there are green is because of the work of hundreds of people over Mm. 100 years or something like that and and every little bit building on every little bit. Science is incremental, there's no doubt about that. But there's nevertheless, there's always a a political aspect to it and there's a lot, a lot of work in the science magazines, which I still read some of, Mm. um, about the, the biases which go into... Um, many types of science. So what you know about plants and animals in some parts of the world mm. is extremely biased because it, it, it's from a colonialist p- perspective. Mm. And so local Indigenous knowledge... It's not represented is, there, is, is it? Is not, not, it has been ignored or it's been misrepresented, and that's even true here, yeah. over 200 years for sure. So that's one part of it. And, and the same with art. Do you have a responsibility to make political statements? No, I don't. Not everybody wants to be a politician. Not everybody wants to get up, put their neck out. Not everybody wants to risk going to jail if it comes to that. If you're in some parts of the world, but nevertheless, we're in a political environment all the time. I mean, in politics in the most general sense, small p yeah, politics, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the sense that 
Every decision we make impacts on someone else. Every decision we make is, is a consequence of other people's decisions. Yeah. <laughs> and we're sitting here today in this, in this lovely old house in, the, in, yeah. in, in Adelaide and it's, it's a position of incredible privilege. Yeah. And I can't do anything about that in, in a very overt sense, but I can acknowledge it. I need to make decisions affecting other people accordingly. And, and so if I go out making a, a video about the terrible behaviour of some fictional business, which I have done, <laughs> Dog Days, which was one of the video which people have done really well around the world, which is actually built around a, a dystopian Adelaide. So I had buildings in Adelaide on fire and falling yeah. down and stuff it's like that. Very pointed, yeah. Um, well, this, this guy's being told off by the dogs. So I can do something about that because that reflects my, my environment, my little corner of the cultural yeah. expanse that I live in. But while I can acknowledge Indigenous culture, and I, and I do deeply, I can't go and speak for the Ghana view no, of this land here. Yeah, so I was going to ask about, um, I think now you sort of answered my question with that sense of, you know, we present science as this, it's facts, it's unbiased, but that you can't escape, there's always going to be a bias. And yeah, I was kind of thinking, how do you resolve that neutrality against presenting a opinion or, a you know, your hypothesis? But it's a lot blarier than yeah, that. Yeah, well, so. yeah well, that's a, that's a re- but that's a really, really important question. And you have to, in science at least, you have to do your best to dissociate those things or unravel them as much as you can and see where that boundary is and it's always going to be blurred. Yeah. But at least you can say it's over this end or it's down that end. Yeah, that and, transparency. And what, I mean, one of the things I used to do in my science was a lot of statistics mm. and mathematical analysis of people's results or image yeah. analysis and, and things pe- like that. And you would think on a surface value that there's no, you know, it's yeah. numbers. <laughs> well, that's exactly yet. right. So the bias would turn up in two ways in that sort of thing. One is what the data is, what, what data you're given. So I'd often do work for other people and they'd come with their data set yep. and I'd ask them, what do you want to know? Yeah. Don't tell me what this is. What do you want to know? Now tell me, what have you got? And let's see if we can answer what you want to know <laughs> with what you've with got. What you've got. <laughs> um, more often than not, the answer was no. <laughs> and mm, they'd have to go to some more experiments. And said, Can't you do this? And I said, I could, but I won't. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that, that's, that's one part of it. Another part of the bias then comes with how you use the numbers to validate or not more qualitative statements. So people would often say, if they have a, a massive results and say, it looks like this or it looks like that. Good. Okay, why do you think it looks like that? Oh, it just does. Well, that's not going to get you anywhere. <laughs> so one of the things I, processes I used, to, I used to really enjoy doing, including my own work, is so what is it here that's giving us this bias? What is it that makes it think it looks like this as opposed to looking like that? There must be something there. And in general, in science, in the end, if it's going to stand up, you've got to be able to put a number on it. Yeah. You've got to be able to measure something. And it may be through a qualitative scale or it may be through some very, very fine-grained measurement. So... So you have to go back into it. And so what are we looking at here? What is it that we're... What, what is it that's tweaking something in our perception that makes us form this opinion? 
and you go back for, and sometimes it's something very subtle sometimes you go back into it it turns out you were wrong you're actually looking at the wrong thing or what you thought you're looking at wasn't telling you what you what you thought it was yeah, yeah. and that happens time and time again um god that sounds like studio work it, it is it's exactly like studio work <laughs> so that 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 way of trying to put your finger on it is a fantastic process i love that process yeah and and like when I do my videos, you, you're sitting there, you're thinking, it's just not working. Yeah. And you're thinking, but why isn't it working? <laughs> Possibly for oh, hours and hours on this. <laughs> why isn't it working? And then you go back and say in, in a video, and you figure out, oh yeah, that transitions. It's half a beat off off the music, or the colour balance is just wrong, or you're doing a painting or something like that. You know, that, yeah. that corner up there, oh, no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. What am I going to do about that now? So what, what do you do about it? You either re repaint it or you, you cut it, reframe yeah. it. And you <laughs> yes. Or you go and yeah. do something else altogether and put it in a box and come, never come back to it. <laughs> um, the parallels. So, yeah, so when I retired, I, I had a filing cabinet full of, of stuff we never, we never finished for some reason or another. And most of it is because we, there was something wrong and we couldn't figure out what it was. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and we'll get to the joinery. Thank you. Thank you.